It's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Lots to talk about on the show today, talking about the issue, and it's a controversial one that you and I have discussed in the past, mandatory minimum sentences, a bill being considered by Parliament that could repeal various instances of that policy. That's right. So this piece of legislation is Bill C-22, which was introduced, uh, just introduced by the uh, government. Uh, and it would do a number of things. Um, it would, first of all, uh, repeal 14 of 64 mandatory minimum sentences found in the uh, criminal code uh, uh, dealing with uh, both criminal offenses and then also uh, uh, offenses related to uh, drugs. Um, and I think that uh, can only be viewed as a, a positive thing. Uh, many of the conditional sentences were introduced by the last uh, Harper Conservative government, uh, and they've essentially been a complete failure in terms of uh, their desire to deter crime. Uh, and you need only ask yourself this question. What sections of the criminal code have mandatory minimum sentences? What are they? How are they going to be effective at deterring you when you have, I'm sure, no idea uh, what those things are or what the sentences might be. Hmm. Uh, one of the uh, sections being repealed, for example, is uh, for a person who's found on a second occasion uh, with raw leaf tobacco of more than 10 kilograms that doesn't have the required excise stamp on it. Uh, until this bill passes, what do you think the minimum sentence is if you're caught twice with more than 10 kilograms? Well, that would be 90 days in jail. Uh, and you can only imagine how effective is that when you have no earthly idea that it exists. And that's the case with most of these things. Hmm. Um, I mean, I do this for a living. Yeah. And I can tell you, uh, I could not name the 64 different offenses for which there's a mandatory minimum sentence. And most people doing this for a living could not do it either. No. Uh, in fact, as a result of this coming in, one of the things which has been added to both of the common, well, I think all three of the commonly used criminal codes in the country uh, certainly Tremere's and Martin's have it, um, uh, is a, a whole new section uh, that tries to figure out what the possible sentences would be for various different offenses. <laughs> so it's gotten so complicated, uh, there's had to be, and it goes on for about 50 pages, uh, trying to figure out what might be the minimum uh, sentence applicable to various offenses. And so what's happened over time um, is that courts have been dealing with these things one at a time and often striking them down as being unconstitutional, which can occur if the resulting sentence uh, would be grossly disproportionate, either for the offender or some other uh, reasonable hypothetical circumstance. And so we've been left with this complete patchwork uh, of uh, some things have mandatory minimum sentences, some things don't, what have mandatory minimums in some provinces differ from others because different courts of appeal have come to different conclusions. And overall, they are just resoundingly clearly ineffective. And people who do this for a living, I think, would be able to tell you that with virtual unanimity. And one of the other undesirable effects that's pointed out is that we have had a continued and growing a uh, disproportionate uh, number of uh, both First Nations people and other visible minorities in jail. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that uh, despite 
various efforts to try to uh, reduce that and recognize some of the systemic factors that lead people to do things like possess raw leaf tobacco uh, without the required excise stamp. Uh, even if you recognize those things for an individual, if you have a mandatory minimum sentence, off to jail they go. Uh, and so that's one of the other effects. Another very interesting element of Bill 22 um, mm. is that uh, it uh, mandates that police officers for drug offenses uh, give consideration, at least, to whether uh, they should be dealt with. This is like simple possession. This, what they have in mind here would be the drug-addicted person who's found with some small amount of you know, drugs in their pocket whether they should be dealt with in some fashion other than a criminal charge. It asks police officers to consider whether those things might be more appropriately dealt with by some other form of intervention. It doesn't require that, uh, but it uh, requires that they consider whether some other approach uh, would be more appropriate, uh, bearing in mind some principles that are set out there, such as the idea that problematic substance use should be addressed primarily as a health and social issue. Uh, and that piece of the legislation has been getting criticism from, I think, the NDP saying, well, that doesn't go far enough. Um, there should be uh, removing uh, the criminalization of, you know, the person who's got some personal use amount of drugs to which they're addicted. Uh, should we be in any circumstances prosecuting the person? Because, of course, it just doesn't work, right? If you If saying something was illegal caused people not to get it, well, the drug problem would have been solved. Uh, long ago, right? It just doesn't have that effect. And so that's another interesting piece of the legislation. And so you've got um, uh, on one side of the spectrum, the uh, federal conservative party saying, oh, this is soft on this and that. And then you've got the uh, NDP on the other side saying this doesn't go far enough. Uh, so maybe there's some indication there of a, a compromise if everyone is unhappy about it. Uh, but I, I must <laughs> A say, truly Canadian uh, initiative, yes. <laughs> that's right. But I must say, broadly speaking, we're going to do more justice uh, by giving judges discretion to determine what is an appropriate sentence rather than uh, trying to envision what uh, uh, would be a minimum suitable for all people, because human affairs are just endlessly complicated uh, and uh, discretion is broadly good. So I think it's a good start. Uh, the remaining mandatory minimums will be dealt with one at a time. Uh, by uh, courts as they consider whether the resulting sentence would be grossly disproportionate and so whether they survive constitutional challenge. Uh, but at least this will simplify things by getting rid of a, a number of these things that have just proven to be completely ineffective at deterring crime. All right. Uh, next up on the agenda, I this was largely before my time, but those who have followed public affairs in the Victoria area since the uh, late 90s into the early 2000s will remember a seemingly no end to controversies that took place at the Esquimalt Police Department. This was before the province essentially forced the amalgamation of the Esquimalt and Victoria Police Departments, creating the newly amalgamated entity that we have today. I'm noticing that one of those matters that triggers memories from a decade and a half or more ago is back in the news. What's happening? Indeed. Uh, so this is a just-filed civil claim being brought by uh, a former teenage paid informant uh, of the Esquimalt uh, Police Department. And in this civil claim, this person who began her interactions with the police when she was a grade 9 Esquimalt high school student um, alleges that 
she became a paid informant of the Esquimalt Police Department, provided information about people who had drugs and other things in their possession. Uh. And I should say, paid informant is not a job that you get by going on to monster.com or something and applying for a job. The way that ordinarily happens, as she alleges here, is you've got somebody who's troubled, like she's obviously a troubled teenager arrested for um, theft. Yes. And often what happens is that the quid pro quo for beginning to act as an informant for the police uh, would be, hey, your shoplifting charge can go away if you'll give me some information about, right, who you know might have drugs in their locker. Yes. Right? Uh, and then it can progress. And the other thing that happens in that kind of a relationship is very quickly the person can wind up being sort of dependent on the police uh, because, first of all, they may be dependent on them for money or they may be dependent on favors uh, to uh, stay out of jail, for example, or stay out of trouble. Uh, or ultimately, you can wind up in a spot where the person's fearful that if they are known to be somebody who's providing information to the police, they could be in danger from people they've been providing information about. And so this uh, person alleges that uh, over time, her uh, relationship with four police officers working at the Esquimalt Police Department, as it then was, uh, became extremely abusive, uh, including sexually abusive. Uh, She alleges that uh, she was required to perform um, sexual acts on uh, various uh, police officers with whom she was engaged. Uh, in that uh, capacity, she alleges she was sexually harassed, touched, uh, brought to parties, uh, uh, all manner of just terrible um, sexual abuse, uh, she uh, alleges in the statement of claim. Um, the other elements of it uh, include some very troubling uh, allegations, including uh, that uh, she was directed to provide false information to Crime Stoppers. Uh, that is a real concern, if true. Uh, Crime Stoppers, of course, allowing anonymous complaints of criminal uh, conduct that can then lead to uh, search warrants or other police uh, investigations. And she alleges that she was uh, directed to provide information to Crime Stoppers that she believed was false. Um, And so in addition to the very troubling allegations of um, sexual exploitation by a, a vulnerable young person by four police officers at the time. Um, The elements of both having a paid teenage police informant, I think we should all pause and reflect upon whether that's something that we want as a community to have as a model uh, or as a part of policing. Should we have that? Is it acceptable that uh, police would develop that kind of a relationship with a grade nine student? Um, Should we have that? Is that worth it? Um, we should also reflect upon um, things like how that crime stopper system operates, hmm. because it, of course, is so susceptible to exactly that kind of abuse, right? If you have um, anonymous uh, complaints being made, um, if they are being directed by the police, you can well imagine how uh, that could lead to um, really serious problems. One of the police officers, I should say here, that's named in this uh, notice of civil claim uh, also had a troubled background in terms of his performance in court. I actually Mm. recognized the name uh, and uh, looked up a case that he was involved in from uh, 2006 where a judge 
disbelieved his evidence in court, uh, concluded that he had uh, sort of made things up effectively, um, that he hadn't put in his notes. The officer's explanation at the time was he didn't make the notes in his notebook because he wrote them on his hand. Hmm. And that's why they appeared nowhere uh, in his report or in his notes. And so one of the individuals named in the civil claim has had a uh, troubled uh, judicial uh, history. And so we want to, of course, keep an open mind. Yes, This is simply a, a notice of claim. These things have not been uh, proven. No. Uh, but uh, if these things are true, uh, they are both very problematic in and of themselves because of, you know, some of the things like the sexual misconduct of a young person by people in that kind of a position of authority. Um, and in addition to being individually very troublesome, uh, would also reveal potential systemic problems, which we should reflect upon in terms of what we should be permitting uh, in terms of police techniques and whether some of these kind of techniques are appropriate ones. And so this will be a very interesting case to watch. Uh, there was some history on it, uh, including a, a started uh, investigation by uh, the Victoria Police Department uh, uh, closer in time to these activities, mm. uh, which is uh, referred to in the statement of claim uh, as indicating that the complainant appeared to be um, an honest and reliable individual and, uh, and concluding, at least according to the statement of claim, uh, that the allegations were corroborated by other uh, witnesses and supporting records. Uh, and then it uh, alleges that uh, at a uh, inquiry into this, the complainant uh, became overwhelmed uh, with psychological terror and was unable to continue uh, testifying at an inquiry, which, again, if true, you could well imagine if you had a young person who was indeed abused in this uh, fashion, uh, how that could happen. So we need to keep an open mind. These things have not been proven, uh, but the allegations are extremely serious, uh, and we should pay attention to both the specifics of the case and how that plays out, um, as well as some of those bigger systemic issues that it uh, it squarely raises. All right. Let's take our break. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers right after this. All right. Continuing with Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. What's next on the agenda, Michael? Well, I think next on the agenda uh, should be a, a discussion of uh, uh, some of the issues that have come out of that uh, overturned murder conviction for the Mr. Talbot uh, in Washington State. Yeah. Uh, most of us have followed this week with some interest. Yeah, I heard you on the morning um, show. Fascinating case. It was really fascinating, right? I mean, it's fascinating from the uh, I mean, tragedy, of course, for the young people in the family, but fascinating from a forensic perspective um, in that the case began with this use of forensic genealogy where the investigation focused on this individual uh, because of DNA samples of relatives who had uploaded them to one of the genealogy sites on the Internet. So it was a very interesting investigation. The successful appeal from the conviction uh, also laid bare one of the differences between the Canadian and the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, justice system in terms of how they will uh, deal with uh, the selection of jurors in Canada. Uh, we don't uh, ask uh, questions in most cases at all of prospective jurors. Uh, 
we count on the idea that there are 12 of them, and hopefully that will uh, even things out. Yes. But the, the U.S. practice would be to carefully question prospective jurors to determine if the person could be unbiased. Uh, and one of the jurors in that case, in the course of that process, candidly said that she didn't think uh, she could necessarily be fair or unbiased because of her uh, her background and experiences. And despite an objection to her serving on the jury, the judge nonetheless put her on the jury, and that's why the case was overturned on appeal. Hmm. So it sort of laid bare that important difference between our two systems. But one of the other differences that we've got in Canada and the U.S. is that in Canada, jurors are not permitted uh, to discuss the uh, what went on during their deliberations. They can speak later about what they saw in court or their general experiences being a juror, uh, but they couldn't say what was talked about in the jury room. And the idea is to provide a forum where people can freely talk about things without thinking they're going to be named on the evening news about what they had to say concerning their decision to acquit or convict somebody. Um, and the provision that provides for that in Canada is Section 649 of the uh, criminal code mm-hmm. that makes it an offense to reveal uh, what was going on during the course of deliberations. There's an interesting exception to that, which is uh, for investigations into alleged offenses under uh, 139 sub 2, which is obstruction of justice. And mm-hmm. that, of course, that might be referred to as the Jillian Guest provision. Um, she was the juror who, in a, a high profile trial uh, back in 2000, um, she had a, a sexual relationship with the accused during the trial. <laughs> it's like I met across the courtroom. And so eventually she was convicted of that. Good. Um, so there's that exception. <laughs> I'm glad that's not permitted. That. Yeah. If, if you, yeah, you, you wouldn't think you'd need to have that in the jury instruction, but don't do that. It's not allowed. Um, so we are not allowed to talk about things with jurors in Canada, but jurors in the U.S., or in Washington State at least, are permitted to talk about what went on during their deliberations. What did they think of the evidence? What did the other jurors say? How did you come to your decision? And so one of the interesting things uh, following this uh, uh, conviction being overturned, I went back and had a look at some of the interviews that were conducted with the uh, jurors who convicted. Um, And the comments and uh, explanations they provided from my perspective as a Canadian lawyer, I thought were fascinating uh, because we just don't get that here. Um, for example, you know, this case was based on these DNA samples. There was no witness to the murder, right? You had these two young people whose bodies were found and you had DNA uh, linking them, uh, linking uh, the uh, 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 body of the uh, one of the deceased to the accused, but that was it. Um, and so, for example, one of the jurors in the interview said this. He said, we got a whole bunch of discrete, not clearly connected data points. It's like a spreadsheet or a crossword puzzle with all kinds of blank cells. And we're supposed to figure out the pattern, fill in these holes. They didn't provide us the connectors. How in the world are we going to say yay or nay on this? Mm. Um, and it gives you a real insight into the struggle that jury had. Uh, ultimately, they spent three days deliberating, uh, and other jurors are quoted talking about, uh, you know, they were trying to figure out all different scenarios, what might have happened, and they couldn't tell, and so on. And ultimately, after three days of deliberation, uh, the uh, jury did convict. Uh, but uh, we have a, 
an interesting insight into that particular case in terms of just how challenging uh, the uh, jurors found it. Uh, and so, well, that, of course, was not the uh, basis for the conviction being overturned. The conviction was overturned because of that juror who at the outset uh, had acknowledged that she didn't think she could be uh, necessarily fair because of her background. Um, it does uh, paint a, a clear picture when you hear the accounts from the jurors is just how much they struggled with the evidence that they did have uh, to come to the conclusion uh, that the accused was guilty. Um, and one of the other jurors who was interviewed spoke about the fact that um, even though they were told by the judge uh, that the, they should draw no uh, adverse inference from the fact that he did not testify, um, one of the other jurors candidly acknowledged that that uh, bothered the jurors um, and uh, they thought that it would be human nature to he tell his side of the story. So clearly, despite what the judge had told them in terms of how they're to approach it and not you know, conclude somebody's guilty because they didn't testify, uh, clearly that was one of the considerations uh, by at least some of the jurors in coming to their conclusion. Um, and so it is an insight into what a challenging case it was because of its nature based on essentially just this DNA evidence yeah. um, without uh, actual witnesses to what occurred and just how much the jury struggled with it. And as we watch this case go forward, we'll also need to keep an eye on things like if there's a new trial, does this man testify, uh, given the comments by the uh, jurors here about how they wish to hear uh, yeah. from him. So a really interesting case, a tragedy for the family and the young people involved. Uh, and uh, hopefully they uh, get it right and make sure that uh, we haven't or they haven't convicted uh, somebody who isn't responsible for it because it was clearly a, a challenging case that could have gone in either direction, according to the jurors. Michael Mulligan, we appreciate the benefit of your knowledge and insight as always, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you so much. Stay safe. All right. You too.